Coming up today on the Lead to Succeed podcast. Some of this is about uh, being highly prepared, doing your homework, if you will, on the environment or the opportunities that you'd consider. First thing I did was look at, okay, what are the opportunities? At what stage are most of these markets at economically? What categories and content is there demand for? What does the consumer in each market look like? So a range, a myriad of questions, it's really just understanding how much demand, how much of a fit, what's the competition look like. And it's it's a matter of a very strict prioritization. Do you want to learn the tricks that top leaders use to get the most out of themselves and their teams? Well, Naftali Hoff is here to help lead to succeed. Picks the brains of top leaders to learn about their challenges, insights, and best practices. Here's Naftali. Hello, Lead to Succeed Nation. It's Naftali Hoff, and welcome to Lead to Succeed, episode 46. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Sean Cohen. Sean Cohen serves as president of Wheelhouse Entertainment, where he is responsible for driving content and marketing opportunities across multiple businesses and platforms, including talent, brand, and other strategic corporate partnerships for the company. Prior to Wheelhouse Entertainment, Sean worked at A&E Networks for nearly 15 years. He served as president of International Digital Media at A&E Networks, where he oversaw the company's rapid growth units and was member of the A&E executive and senior leadership teams. Sean has been named a digital all-star by Broadcasting Cable, ranked in the top five of CableFax's most influential minorities in cable, and was called one of the most influential blacks in corporate America by Savoy Magazine. Sean, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Thank you for having me. That's an unbelievable bio, a lot there. And uh, as I shared with you in our pre-recording conversation, I had to take about half of it out in order to make it more manageable for our conversation. So if you can, in just a few words, tell us a little bit more about what you do. Sure. And I think, uh, thanks very much, Natalia. Um, over the overarching theme that cuts across, across both my, um, my, uh, th- these last two uh, tenures is I drive growth, uh, business growth and creative growth. I manage seismic change, generally growing and sometimes large organizations. And I, I tend to learn and then and teach. Uh, specifically at Wheelhouse, a relatively new uh, content brand and investment company, I drive the development and sale of content. I generate and finalize new strategic partnerships with lots of different kinds of entities. And I prove out the value of innovation uh, across previously divided worlds, those worlds being content uh, production uh, and let's call it marketing and and creative and investment. And so kind of prove my my goal here is to prove out and we're we're proving out uh, the link the value, the the synergies, as overused as that is, between those different sectors of verticals. Interesting. You said a mouthful, even in a short amount of time, and I'm going to need yeah, some I, education I, here, uh, you know, just to understand it better because it sounds fascinating. You know, now we could have the question focus more on the A&E side simply because you were there for longer, but obviously what you're doing in Wheelhouse as well. 
I do want to understand this this piece about synergy. But before I do go into that, uh, I'd like to understand the the expansion, which I talked about in your bio, because to me that's a fascinating thing to be able to grow uh, a platform, to grow offerings in such a robust kind of way. And so my question to you, Sean, is how when you're thinking about expansion, you know, you have a good product and you're servicing your clients and you're doing a good job, so to speak, but you want more and you want to grow further and you want to get your product out there to more and more people in a variety of different ways, whether it's the same product or offering different products and services. How do you go about determining when is the right time to push forward and when would be better served to sort of sit still or perhaps even to pull back? Yeah, it's a great question. I think. I think the first thing I'd say, and it's maybe fairly obvious, but it's some of this is about uh, being highly prepared, doing your homework, if you will, on the environment or the opportunities that uh, that you'd consider. So in an A&E context, when I first got to A&E 15 years ago, we were an A&E, A&E the History Channel, Lifetime, and a bunch of, uh, bunch of other award-winning brands and content offerings. At A&E, we were we tended to be fairly domestic uh, U.S. in our focus, and the, you know the world we, we had a couple of channels and a couple of markets and maybe a couple of content deals, but the world was pretty much a blank slate. And so in that context, I think the first thing I did, and this was a model for for how we did it across 15 years and how I'm thinking about it these these last couple of months at Wheelhouse. First thing I did was look at. Okay, what are the opportunities? At what stage are most of these markets at economically? What categories and content is there demand for? What does the consumer in each market look like? So a range, a myriad of questions. I answered a myriad of questions. And then, uh, as you mentioned, we had at A&E at the time, it was we and now at Wheelhouse, when you have a strong content offering, your strong product, it's really just understanding... Uh, how much demand, how much of a fit, what's the competition look like? And there is a, it's a matter of very strict prioritization, I think is maybe uh, one of the key undercurrents to your question. I, at A&E, I felt like the world was our oyster. With a strong, very universal brand like History, it was very, very portable in a way. There was an AB educated male-female audience everywhere that I felt that demanded uh, history, it really was about prioritizing which markets first. And in many ways, as I think forward to now my, my current uh, tenure at Wheelhouse, it really is, there's a tremendous amount of opportunity for the unscripted and scripted content we do, for the feature docs we have, for the work that we, we are doing with and for brands and for investment this kind of wheelhouse vehicle. And it's really just, well, determining which are the the best and most time critical opportunities to chase and finalize and which can kind of wait, can wait or maybe are better, best suited to hold off on. Okay. So I, I'm yep. interrupting a little bit because I know you've got so much in there, but I, I want to understand something better. And I'm very curious about it. You talked about opportunities, prioritization within those opportunities. So being prepared makes all the sense in the world to me. I get it. But how do you identify? Like, So for example, with me, if I want to roll out a coaching program, I'm in coaching. So so I'm always interested in is, is an ebook 
a value? Would people want some type of online course or whatever it is that I could potentially offer? And so one thing I need to be doing is talking to my target audience, sending an email to my, to my group or to my list, finding out more about what would serve them and what, if I prepared it for them, would really resonate. I would imagine that's a harder thing to do if you're trying to break into a new market to just start surveying people and to try to figure out what serves them, et cetera, what their interests are. But, but how do you go through that process to determine where the best opportunities are and what advice would you give to leaders in basically any industry to help them become more strategic around opportunities and then taking action? Okay. I would say in evaluating which opportunities are the ones, I mean, I think the preparation we did was anything and, and preparation and effort to understand the market and opportunity was anything from looking at what was on TV and what was popular in that market to understanding the population dynamics, you know, the kind of psychographics of the market, to even doing focus groups in markets about brands and content and so on. So there was that piece that was kind of understanding the customer, the market, the opportunity, you know, from a, from like an end end user perspective. It was also evaluating the opportunities. A big part of that was understanding when there was a great partner for us to join up with to make something happen. Content and media generally tend to be very partner intensive. When I say that, what I mean is as a pay TV channel or in the US we call it cable channel, you've got to partner up with a platform. We call it an affiliate. You've got to obviously make yourself attractive to advertisers. There's local producers and regional producers to produce relevant, additional locally relevant content. There's a, f- a field of big partnerships that are going to be important to the success of a venture or of, a, you know, of an effort. Not to mention the individual partners in the form of general manager and senior staff and then a team. And so I, I know that's going to sound fairly lofty, and, and, and just a huge amount of potential partnerships. But I think in addition to understanding that there's a big demand, there could be a demand for your product in the market or a lane, if you will, for your product in a market, it's also understanding if, you, if there are the right conditions, the right people, the right entities around you that can help you be successful. And if those folks are clamoring for you to enter or if those folks are to have a similar chemistry to, to your company, if there, there's a shared perspective on the opportunity, these are all things that are going to be important input in making an opportunity be, or you be successful at capitalizing. It's not only understanding what there's demand for, but understanding where, in what situations there are similarly minded, aligned partners out there. And I think it's also about right-sizing the number of opportunities that you're chasing at once. And I think it's in a world of nearly infinite, I think this is where you were going, Natalia, with your question, in a world of, at times, seemingly infinite possibilities, it, the prioritization, the kind of calling down, and part of that is, you know, it's kind of finding, force ranking, if you will, against a lot of these things we've been talking about. And then it's about understanding what you as an organization have the bandwidth to be good at, to be to really be successful at. He'd rather do 
a handful of things very well rather than, you know, a hundred things in a mediocre way. Sure. Lot there, Sean. I, I want to talk about two of them, if I can. One of them you just touched on at the very end, which is of interest to me. So how do you, now in Wheelhouse, let's say, how do you determine really what your strengths are? Like, what process do you use to make that determination? Well, I think it's a great question. I think, first off, there's a lot of gut in that. And there's a lot of, um, you know, uh, even before you get into analytics or in kind of really heavy strategic thinking about it, there's the, you know, there's kind of what's obvious, what kind of smacks you in the face. So, like, for us, we're founded by a leader, in Brent, a guy named Brent Montgomery, who is quite known or visible in production circles for having produced a lot of great unscripted hits from Pawn Stars to uh, overseeing the production of Fixer Upper to uh, being responsible for the team that reboot Queer Eye on Netflix and so on. You know, one time was overseeing something like 90 shows on air in the unscripted space. So the obvious thing is, we're very strong in the in the ideation and execution of great unscripted television. So that's you know okay that's one strength. But I think that's you know that is the amongst the more obvious. Then you get into but actually the strength of our group is also in attracting like-minded, highly creative, and really hardworking talent. Uh, when I say that, I mean. I mean, executive talent, but I also mean creative talent and, and celebrity talent like a Jimmy Kimmel. And so you just, I, I think it's a mix to your question. I think it's a mix of the real, the obvious and what, what other folks would report. And, you know, if you queried 10 people in our industry, what they would say, which I agree with, but it's also then understanding underneath there, there's some kind of core attributes. Let's say they're very leverageable in different environments. I mean, another core attribute is another core strength that we've recognized is a willingness to go against the grain a bit, as cliche as that sounds. In my career, I've, you know, I talk about, I talk to you when you asked about my, what I've done or what I do is part of this is about affecting, driving, evangelizing around seismic change one day, one bit at a time. And I think our strength, one of our strengths as an organization, in addition to a reputation, as I mentioned, for making great unscripted content and, a, and for attracting talent that is, you know, hard driving and willing to put in the work and good at what they do. It's also, our strength is also in a willingness to take on industry change and drive industry change, which is sometimes hard, but, you know, one day at a time through evangelism internally and externally through just kind of grit and grinding. And so I would would include that as well. Yeah, there's a lot there. The little ribbon I would like to, you know, the bow I'd like to tie on top of this before my next question, Sean, is that I like the, I guess you'd call the dichotomy between the gut, you know, what you know about yourself and what history has shown you to be great and successful at versus those things that you're asking, whether it's your clients or others within the industry, what makes us special? Why do you want to work with us? What's the attraction there? Because sometimes you don't even realize what it is that you're doing really well that, you know, there, there are probably a lot of companies that do what you do. And so why would people want to work with you rather than anybody else? And sometimes just asking that question, talking to your ideal clients, talking to people you've worked with in the past, what makes us unique and special 
that oftentimes could really rise to the top. And then frankly, you want to be doing more of that, or you want more people to know about what you're doing. So I think that that was a really great way to approach the strengths piece. Now let's talk a little bit. And Naftali, Naftali, can I interject and just say? Sure, go ahead. I couldn't agree more. I think I would, so you had one bit that's gut, one bit that's almost like a giant 360 kind of exercise where you're asking lots of different stakeholders. And then maybe after that, there's also one bit that some folks might call navel gazing, but it's just really thoughtful uh, examination of what what might not be so obvious in what you have and how that could be applied in new ways. Mm. Yeah, there's so much there. And I I think you probably have to go through a lot of conversation to identify what those are. But doing that work, you know, sometimes we're so busy wanting to get more work done that we don't take the time to go back a little bit and to reflect. And to me, leaders with their teams, regardless of size of organization, regardless of industry, you need to be taking the time to ask these kinds of questions. Because as you do, you get your North Star, you get really clear on what you need to be focused on, what drives you as a company, what are your values, this kind of thing. And it also helps you to use the kind of language and be at the right kind of places where you're attracting the right people, which is a beautiful segue into my next question, which had to do with partnerships, because you talked about that before, about the importance of partnerships and all the various ways in which partners exist within your industry and having the right alignment, if you will, of all those components to make sure that this is a new market, for example, that you should be entering. This is a new line of of product that you should be introducing, et cetera. So take us through a little bit the process of how do you determine what does a good partner look like to you? And where do you, so to speak, draw the line? Let's say, for example, you don't have to go into this in detail, but let's say you have a partner where there's an element of what they do that's really, really good, but there's a part of how they roll that that concerns you or some other you know, reason for pause. How do you determine, do I go all in, so to speak, with this partner and at the same time make sure that the relationship is strong for the long term? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, again, our business is so partner intensive and depending upon the depth of the partnership, I used to, you know, there's some of these that are feel that are almost as heavy as, as matrimony, right? I used to, uh, at A&E, we had a series of joint ventures internationally that I used to joke that we had kind of nine or 10 marriages. And they really are, I think, the way that I and and Wheelhouse and A&E tend to approach partnerships are very long-term endeavors in, in many cases. So I think the first thing that's important in this discussion is probably a little bit of a date before you marry, or, or some would say walk before you run. And I think uh, it's a, in the creative realm, there's often many opportunities to kind of try out or work, collaborate or work together on one or two projects that are you know almost pilots uh, to see to evaluate whether there's a shared chemistry, whether there is aligned aligned approach, whether there is a uh, you know a similar you know integrity uh, intensive way or or you know trust trust oriented way of doing business, and I think those often provide the momentum for lots of different stakeholders for a lot you know the consensus to kind of build on to build great partnerships out of. So I think that's probably the first thing that I've, I've seen. And I think it's very similar DNA between the two companies. 
that I've been involved with. I think you've also asked the question, where do you draw? There's a bit of a, where do you draw the line? Let's say they do something that you really like, but then there's some stuff that you really don't like. Or, and again, I maybe will go back to the marriage metaphor. I mean, clearly it's very difficult to find perfect partners. You're not going to love everything, but I think it may be in determining where your hard lines are very clearly managing your own and your partner's expectations around those in black and white. I mean, certainly great partnership and and success in our business requires flexibility, but there are certain things that lines you don't cross. For example, I'm going to talk in an extreme to illustrate the point. For example, at A&E, it was important to us that we were never involved with a partner that, let's say, that would traffic in obscenity or in anything that anyone in any society could call pornographic. That was a very, you know, kind of thick line. We never went near, and it was it was important to us. And so it was something that we, you know, that was part of every deal. It was really you just we were informative, entertaining content, but informative with takeaway. And so we couldn't, and and with very hallowed brands, we never wanted to have history, A and E, or Lifetime, or our other brands associated with or nearby, you know, objectionable content. That's an extreme. But it's, it's just an illustration of you do have a handful of things that are deal breakers. And it's kind of staying true to that and flagging them from the outset. And that, along with the piloting or the date before you marry, you know, those are just a couple of things that I think were important uh, ingredients for a successful partnership. I think maybe the other thing I'd put out there is when a partnership's not working, it's complete transparency and candor. And finding amicable and honest ways out, you know, uh, out of situations rather than letting them fester. These are all things that I think for folks, men and women that are married, I think they're probably, you know, again, and even unmarried, fairly obvious. And it just are ingredients for a great relationship. It's honesty and and will a willingness to to kind of call things out as they happen uh, rather than waiting for things to fester. For example. I love it. Thank you, Sean. So there's a piece in what you said that that answer alone had a lot of gold. And frankly, I wish we had more time to unpack all of that because, you know, I heard values. I heard transparency. I heard, you know, understanding, you know, beginning small and and, and trying a couple of uh, of opportunity for interaction engagement before you really dive deep into the relationship. But in there, and really, this is a lot of what you do. And so I'd like to pivot to this because I think a lot of people struggle, and frankly, myself, I'm continuing to try to think about, you know, how do I get content out there that will serve my brand, my company, my organization in a very positive way? There's so much competition for people's attention. And so whether it's social media, whether it's email, whether it's print media, et cetera, or frankly, bringing things to advertising, you know, people are trying, constantly trying to think about how do I distinguish myself? And how do I add value so that people will want to turn to you as a content expert, great product, great service, et cetera? So what tips can you share, Sean, for, for Lead to Succeed listeners that will help all of us become better at getting our content out there uh, in the right way that will resonate with people and will drive the outcomes that we want? 
I'd start out, Natalia, I'd start out with, uh, and then, by the way, that's a, uh, that's probably a several hour answer, the way yes. that I answer questions <laughs> and, and, and the, the richness of the, the question, the topic generally, but I'll probably stay with, you know, I'll start with a handful and then we can go, go deeper from there. I mean, I think first is, uh, maybe I'll come back to part having the right partners that can help you get there. And uh, I may may lean too much on a team metaphor, but it's the recognition that you can't do it yourself. You've got, and you have to find. At times, it's about finding the best, best in class or really impactful partners in different contexts to kind of help you get your message out there. I think it's uh, second thing I throw out there is it's about going back to the preparation I talked about. It's about finding the white space or the lane or the the need out there that maybe isn't being satisfied as much as it could be. It's specifically in a content space. It's about avoiding being derivative of other content. Being truly creative and unique uh, is an important piece. Let me make that less abstract. It's at times, it's not about being the and I'll go back to Pawn Stars, which is a common thread between any networks and Wheelhouse, in the sense that Wheelhouse's founder produced that Pawn Stars show with, a, with some of our folks for history uh, at AD. It was about finding a different, in Pawn Stars or other uh, unscripted shows, it was about finding a different space, a different world told a different way that maybe you hadn't seen before. It's about having the first or second show about a new context rather than the 10th. Because, and there's a lot of Me Too and not Me Too the way that we've thought about Me Too the last couple of years, tragically, in media and and business. It's about avoiding being a copycat or an imitator and being something truly unique that will make you stand out from all of the noise and arguably the oversupply uh, of content out there. And then maybe the fourth thing I'll throw out and then I'll breathe is about, maybe I'll come back to the word need, it's about finding the, the itch or a way to scratch the itch or the strategic needs of some of the, the other layers in the value chain. What I mean by that is, if you're putting out content, say on LinkedIn or on, or on YouTube or on Facebook or what, what have you, in certain Netflix or history, not only is it about understanding what the white space is uh, and the need state is for consumers, but it's also understanding what's important to that buyer, what need, what's happening with them, how can I help them scratch an itch or kind of better dress a need, better their cost. And so, yeah, I, I don't know, I'll pause there, but partners, white space, super creative, unique. And scratching the B two B itches are are some of the things that I think about. Hmm. Yeah, I, I like all of them. I like the scratching of the itch piece in particular because I'm constantly trying to think of what are my clients' needs, and and I think for many of us we have to be thinking in those terms. Though sometimes, you know, especially I would think with entertainment, you're kind of driving the need. You know, sometimes it's a matter of people don't realize they need it until you provide it. Uh, so it's a little bit of a different angle. But I think your point is is well taken that if we can really start to be more mindful of what am I going to put out there that will actually transform somebody's way of thinking, somebody's behavior, 
you know, folding in creativity, folding in, you know, filling in of the white space, folding in the right kind of partnership that's going to push it out there, but being driven all the way through from how am I going to be a value contributor to the market, to people in my network, people in my feed, that I think has particular resonance, at least for me, and I would assume for many of my listeners, our listeners as well, because of the fact that we're all trying to create some kind of value proposition. We all want to, even you talk about in, in cable, I mean, I know I actually don't have a TV, and so I'm not watching on a regular basis. But I know that when I do flick on a TV and I see hundreds of channels, literally, you know, even though there's so much competition. And so you need to be able to find something that's going to grab somebody's attention and frankly, make a positive, a positive impact. And so, yeah, I think that was a great response. Well, thank you. And if you, I mean, if you, would you, would you want me to give you examples of that? Or do you think we're, you think we're good with that kind of framework? I, I think for now, yeah, I, there are a couple more things and I know we're, we're kind of running out on, on time. So I don't want to lose, lose sight of, right. of some other pieces here. Now, I did mention in your bio about you being recognized as an influential minority within the industry. And, and I'm curious, you know, and you mentioned me too quickly in conversation. I don't want to make this political. I certainly don't want to take this beyond the leadership space. But I do think it's important for leaders of any ethnicity, gender, race, et cetera, to understand some of the challenges that minorities are facing. And uh, specifically, whether it's within the entertainment industry or a little bit beyond, what could leaders be doing that would create more opportunity and not just actual opportunity as in, let's call it rising within the ranks and finding a different position being promoted, but to be fully comfortable and to feel fully valued wherever they are within, within an organization? Interesting. Uh, great question. And uh, tolerance, tolerance and a diverse uh, not only workforce, but product approach, inclusive kind of feeling has is, is been very important to both companies uh, that we've talked about today, both companies that I've, I've worked for, and it's clearly very important to me. I think there's a lot of different ways we can go with this. I mean, I think the first most obvious, maybe as a leader, is very exhaustive, diligent, proactive searches when you're out looking for resources, looking for people. And here's what I mean by that. It's in spaces like making content, we occupy several different spaces that we all have. You know, content production, uh, working with and for brands and, and you know, investment activity. And often, given the status quo, given what workforces in these spaces have looked like before, uh, you know, during the last 5, 10, 20, 30 years, it can be sometimes very straightforward to find the person that looks like everybody else or talks or thinks or acts or, or is oriented or what have you, like the decision maker. I mean, you know, there's far, to, as, as has been talked about by people far smarter and more visible than myself, there's a dearth of diversity at the, at the senior most ranks. And so the, the, I think the first thing that no matter what you are, look like, think like, where you're from, the first thing you can do is seek out people that are not like you for role. And uh, sometimes that takes more work. Sometimes it takes a little bit more imagination. Sometimes it, you know, it takes a bit of diligence into how different things across industry lines or you know, across, uh, across different lines might be leverageable. But I think that's, you know, that's key. I think 
in particular in in a creative and content industry, it's important to not only have uh, go out and seek to have a really inclusive, tolerant, broad workforce, but it's also to make your product inclusive and reflective of you know of lots of different uh, consumers, viewers, etc. out there. And I think they both kind of they work in kind of concert, but it may be, and there may sound obvious, but it's it's definitely some things I've seen particularly amongst some competitors and some external situations, because I think we've generally been good with it. I've seen people fall short on it. I hear. And I think as an industry, as an industry, as a society, we still have to do a hell of a lot better at kind of at finding and, and making things that are more inclusive. I think clearly uh, maybe the more obvious, the most obvious thing as a leader, and it's be, you know, it's, it's become blindingly obvious over the last couple of years that have been there have been a lot of bad actors when it comes to this. Is once people are on board and once you set out to create content that's inclusive and respectful and and interesting to lots of different groups of people, it's also it's a don't be a schmuck kind of moment. It's you know treat w- treat your employee base, your partners with great respect. And it may even be a call out to more of a servant leadership kind of an approach where I, I describe servant leadership simply as when you hire folks, you work for, as the leader, you work for them. And it's your job to make them not only comfortable, feel rewarded and safe, but it's also it's to remove some of the obstacles that might be in their way and elicit a great result from them. Yeah. Powerful, powerful answer. And, and you have so many pieces in here, the idea of, of finding and embracing others, people who are different, especially on the leadership level. I think that alone, you know, for our conversation today would have made it valuable and worthwhile because oftentimes we want to find more people like us. And I think it's important for leaders, not only in terms of diversity and all of this, but just diversity of thought. You know, I think yeah. these are good. These are all excellent. In other words, the, the answer that you gave me I think was an excellent response to what we might even call leadership 101, right? What are leaders, what do leaders need to be thinking about to succeed? You talked about servant leadership, you know, providing, providing for others, treating everybody with respect, which sometimes we, we don't necessarily do it intentionally, but we don't even realize people's sensitivities, what a respectful response looks like. You know, I grew up in New York and I, I was a head of school down in Atlanta. And I remember early on, I was in the office and there was a conversation and I kind of just jumped into the conversation, not thinking that I was offending anybody. And I was told afterwards that somebody was offended because they thought that I was speaking over them. And sometimes it's a cultural thing. Sometimes though, yeah. it's a matter of just being you know, aware of how your behaviors are being perceived by others. So when you go into the approach, like you talked about making sure that your product is inclusive, making sure that your interviewing process is inclusive. If you think about these things all the time, if you're working constantly on yourself as a person and as a leader, I sense, yes, you have to have policies and yes, you have to have all these kinds of things, but a lot of it will just take care of itself because you are good at the core, if you will. And that goodness manifests itself in so many of these other types of interactions in hiring decisions and promotion and whatnot. And so that alone, um, I think really was a beautiful cap to our, to our last segment. And we're going to quickly go into our rapid fire at this point. And my first question to you, Sean, is these answers are really short. So no elaboration, please. 
Your favorite TV <laughs> show. This might, might be a little political. Your favorite TV show. Billions. Okay. A quote that you live by or think about often. Uh, I'll give you two. Mike Bloomberg, uh, paraphrase, once said, I'm not the smartest guy in the room, but I will outwork you. It's the one thing I can control. And Maya Angelou once said, uh, again, very, very poorly paraphrased, it's um, people won't remember, will, will not remember X, will not remember Y, but they'll remember how you made them feel. Yes, yes. I love both of those. Introvert or extrovert? Uh, on the line. Myers-Briggs say, uh, says I'm on the line. It depends upon the day. <laughs> so you're an ambivert then, possibly. Last one, shirt, pants, or socks? Which one goes on first? Wow. Shirt, pants, or socks? It's <laughs> uh, <laughs> very funny because I laugh at my wife because she does in the wrong order in my mind. Uh, pants. <laughs> oh, really? Okay. I'm a shirt guy. Absolutely. All right. So how can everyone find find out more about you? Where can we connect with you online? Uh, you have so much to offer. I'm sure that many of uh, uh, Lead to Succeed listeners and Lead to Succeed Nation will want to continue the conversation with you in some form. Sure. I, probably the best way in this context is LinkedIn. You can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, and I, I, I visit there a bunch of times a day, but I'm also millennial-like in that I'm kind of an omnivore across uh, platforms. So Instagram, uh, Twitter, and, and and so on. But LinkedIn, probably best. And we're going to have all of your uh, social media handles on the in the show notes as well. So easy, it could be easy to find you there. Okay, Sean, you've given me a ton. I want to ask you, please, though, for one final life lesson that could just could really wrap up our conversation and bring it to a beautiful close. Yeah, I, I would say we haven't talked about, um, you know, childhood or growing up or any of that lessons from that. But I, I think one thread through my background that's become truer and truer with time is, um, maybe that comfort is the enemy. And that's related to my feeling on the status quo, particularly in businesses that, um, that need to change. It's really finding, you know, sometimes it's, it's uh, both individually and uh, with regard to companies, it's about finding those uncomfortable places, uh, those skills, contexts, uh, lessons that make you feel uncomfortable where there's actual growth happening. And when I say that, I'm of course not talking, I'm talking about all within the, the bounds of uh, an appropriate and, um, you know, and kind of tolerant kind of workplace. But I, I mean, in my case, if I was comfortable leading a large organization and I'd built a large organization and, uh, and profitable organization, so I sought discomfort in a more entrepreneurial outfit or in, a, in an organizational context, wheelhouse. Is our aim is to innovate and change industry across these three verticals I talked about, content, brands, and investment. And I, often it's the status quo and the rhythm that we all develop as leaders in our life, in day-to-day -day business, it, it can be quite alluring. The comfort, the, you know, that can be uh, quite stable and uh, secure. And I think, I think often it's about finding a way out of that that produces the most individual and uh, company and societal growth. Beautiful thought. I think that that is something that's very counter in many ways to what's put out there. You know, people talk about following your passion and do what you love and this kind of thing, which sounds all great and wonderful. But the reality is if you don't grow and you don't extend yourself, you'll never be able to do more than you presently do. 
And there's a video I have to show to you with uh, a psychiatrist by the name of Abraham Tversky talks about the growth of lobsters and how their shells are firm and finite. But as the lobster grows, what it has to do is break out of its shell, go underneath a rock and develop a new one around it because the discomfort ultimately produces the next phase of its growth and its development. So a beautiful lesson. Thank you, Sean, so much for coming on the show with me today. I've learned a ton. Certainly look forward to connecting with you further. I know we're connected on LinkedIn, so I hope to develop the relationship there. And I hope that Lead to Succeed Nation really gets to connect with you and know you better because you have so much to offer. And again, really appreciate your time today. Thank you. Appreciate your time. Thanks so much for listening to this episode and for investing in yourself so that you can lead to succeed. Before you go, don't forget to pick up your copy of Becoming the New Boss on Amazon or at becomingthenewboss.com. If you've already got your copy, be sure to rate the book and leave a comment.